Uh, thanks very much. I know that you um, uh, quite regularly have Bob Telford down here. Actually, one of the most lovely stories uh, that we've had in counties. We put it in the magazine, and I'll bring along uh, some copies of the magazine uh, later. I uh, forgot to bring them out of my book, but if you're here tonight, I will have some counties literature that I will bring in. But uh, we had a, a different counties day uh, this year. Um, we, instead of having a Saturday in March... Uh, we moved to the end of June and we had a large event up in Gloucestershire. We had over 700 people come to it. We ran it very much as a family day and then sort of late afternoon, early evening, we had seminars, workshops and an evening celebration. Um, but one of the joys was the number of families who came along to that event and uh, I was on the field, we'd got lots of marquees up, it was a beautiful day, in fact, um, we were beaten by the weather, not in the normal British summer weather sense, but it was scorching hot, it was unbearably hot, it was well into the 30s, and uh, by the time it came to our evening pro program, most people had found it too much and left, so 700 people on the day, about 130 stayed for the evening, which was good but uh, most couldn't hang around. In fact, the ice cream man, as someone put it to me, had a meltdown. We had to, we had to literally get an ambulance to take him to hospital. He passed out with heat stroke. So um, it, was, uh, it was one of those uh, very, very hot days. But on the field, I was approached by this um, girl with her family. Her husband was there. She said, hi, Martin, you won't remember me. And to be honest, I, I didn't, I guess. Over the years, you get to see a lot of people and you remember some faces and you don't always remember names. And uh, she said, my name's Hannah. And I said, nice to meet you, Hannah. She said, this is my husband, Joe. Actually, Giovanni, he's Italian. She said, um, I, did a, I did a summer team in your house in 2001, 2002. We came and stayed uh, with you in Hereford and I was part of a summer team. I wasn't married then. She said, I was in my teens and uh, I was trying to rack my brains. We'd had summer teams through a number of years. And it was, I said, it was lovely to see you again, lovely to meet your family. And um, anyway, later on in the day, Bob Telford had been doing his gun dog display uh, as part of the event. And uh, I was sitting with him under the shelter of a tree, uh, having some ice cream mans. He was, uh, some ice creams, the ice cream man was still in operation at that point. And uh, Bob said, well, it's been well worth my while coming today. And I thought, well, the gun dog displays had gone well. And Bob got sharing a little bit of the gospel. And I, I presume that's what he was talking about. He said, no, this girl approached me and uh, her name is Hannah. I said, oh, I met Hannah. He said, oh, well, let me tell you what she said to me. Hannah came over to Bob and said, oh, Bob, you won't remember me. She said, but a number of years ago, she said, um, you were the speaker at Nottinghamshire Summer Camp when John Wilkes was the county's evangelist in Nottingham. And uh, he was running the Nottinghamshire Christian Youth Camps and they had Bob as the guest speaker. And she said, you were the speaker, Bob, at John's camp. And that summer, that camp, that week, I gave my life to Jesus. And I want to introduce my husband, Joe, to you. Um, Joe is Giovanni. He's from Italy. And we're missionaries with Echoes International in Siena, in northern Italy. And it's like, wow, isn't that just great? It's just, that's, that's the kind of thing that keeps you going in the work. And just to see someone whose life was changed. And uh, she was from, uh, not from a Christian family, 
and going through a very difficult time as a teenager. But God found her and changed her and saved her and has called her onto the mission field. Well, we've, we're coming into the book of Acts in chapter 9, and we're going to think about a, a, an amazing conversion, uh, a testimony, um, one that many of us are familiar with. I'm not going to read the, uh, the whole section at the beginning. We'll dip in and read some verses from Acts chapter 9 as we go along. So we're looking at Acts chapter 9, but we'll read some of it as we go along. In the book of Acts, there are a number of turning points the book of Acts is the story of the growth of the church. In fact, Luke, who is the, um, the human author of both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, uh, introduces Acts as effectively the continuing mission and work of Jesus. And when you read his introduction, that's very much how he introduces it. it, it Luke is the story of Jesus through to the cross, Christ's death and resurrection, and then into chapter 1 of Acts, we have the ascension of Jesus going back into heaven. And uh, again, a reiteration there in Acts 1, verse 7 and 8 of the Great Commission, as they're told to take this message starting at Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and going to the ends of the earth, preaching the gospel and making disciples. And so the book of Acts goes in phases, and then there's a pause and a, a recap and then it goes again, and then there's a pause and a recap, and then it goes again. And you can pick that rhythm up if you read through the book of Acts. And there are turning points in the book. A turning point is the reorganization, the restructuring of church leadership in chapter 6. As the church is growing, and they need to put in some extra stewarding and support and ministry teams. Uh, then you get the martyrdom of Stephen, followed by a wave of persecution. It comes the first martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death. And, of course, standing at his impromptu trial is a man called Saul of Tarsus. Interestingly, Saul of Tarsus, there's that uh, euphemistic phrase when you get the uh, death of Stephen. And at the end of that section, it says Saul of Tarsus was there. And it, it sounds like he's holding the coats, like he's just some kind of cloakroom boy at the big event. But holding the cloaks, again, seems to be this euphemistic way of saying Saul of Tarsus is giving the go-ahead to what's happening. He's got some controlling influence over what is happening. He stood in the background orchestrating it. And so he stands aside. It's as though he's giving the thumbs up, go ahead, kill him. And then immediately, of course, we find that Saul goes to get permission to continue, in fact, to expand the persecution of the early Christian church. After the death of Stephen, though, we don't go straight on with the story of Saul, which we'll pick up here in, in chapter 9. We, we get what happens after the death of Stephen, and that's the flourishing and the growth of the church. You, you know, the problem we have as Christians, the problem that the church has is we often become comfortable. I'm so encouraged to hear about the open air work with Faith Mission and some of your folks joining along with that down in the town center. We can become comfortable in our Christianity. God is good to us and he blesses us. But sometimes we end up resting on our laurels. And I think that the church in Acts is an example of what happens when the church settles in. And we move from mission into maintenance. 
And maintenance, ultimately, if maintenance, we need to maintain the work of God, of course. But if we're in maintenance mode, that leads to decline. We've got to constantly keep the balance between maintaining what God has given us, encouraging, feeding, seeing the growth of the believers, the disciples, and at the same time pushing forward in mission. And when the church got stuck in Acts, it seems that persecution got them unstuck. Because after Stephen's death, they move out into Samaria. Well, that was in the commission, wasn't it? Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria, and they only get to Samaria after the persecution. It's a religious persecution under Saul of Tarsus with the letters that the high priests write on his behalf. And then later on under Herod, you get a political persecution. Aren't those the two major forms of persecution the church around the world faces today? Religious and political. And so there's a political persecution. And under Herod, what happens in the political persecution? You read about it in chapters 11, 12, and into 13. They end up going beyond Samaria, and believers end up having fled the persecution in Antioch, a seaside town, different somewhat from Painton. It was a port, a major port. It was a place where people traveled from all over the world and stopped. It was um, probably... Not quite the first century equivalent of the Silly Isles, but I expect there were a few pubs and clubs. It was that kind of a place. It was a cosmopolitan city. And sailors stopped there. People stayed there. People met and married there. And the church, when it gets to Antioch, starts to see the flourishing of mission worldwide. So you see these step changes in the life of the church. But one of these great turning points is um, here in Acts chapter 9. So let's read about it. And just, um, I want to read you a different scripture just to set the scene. I want to remind you of what Jesus says in Matthew 16. You don't need to turn to this. If if you've got your Bible open at (coughs) Acts 9, that'll be fine. But Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 16, 15, What about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And now Jesus, the head of the church, the one who is building and establishing his church here today and then in the first century, the Lord of the church is about to, well, can I use a modern phrase? He's about to up the ante. <laughs> He's about to raise the temperature. He's about to switch things up a bit. There's a turning point. This Saul of Tarsus, who is opposing the gospel, opposing Jesus, opposing and persecuting the church, a change is coming to Saul of Tarsus, and it will change the direction and destiny of the work of the gospel and the growth of the church. You know, The story of Saul 
is a great story to have in mind as you work in your community. So let's think about that. Let's read verses 1 and 2 first of all. And uh, I'm giving it the heading under this bit. Saul had a plan inspired by the evil one. So the verses are there on the screen. It says, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. You know, when opposition and persecution comes, we can very uh, quickly blame the individual through who it comes. But it would be better to recognize the source of the hatred. Very easily, we personalize things. You know, we were praying in the prayer time beforehand, not just for the service, but also for our nation. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure most preachers week by week say, I won't mention the B word. Um, but, but we're in a bit of a mess, aren't we? Now, the danger for us, and particularly for Christians, is that we personalize the mess and we demonize the person. We can demonize people. And that's true when there's opposition to the gospel and to the work of God. But it'd be better if we recognized the source. In the gospel of John, Jesus um, is in a conversation with the Pharisees. And we have this. Jesus says to them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The persecution, the hatred of the church, the opposition to Jesus is spawned from hell itself. And Jesus is Lord of the church, but Satan is kicking and screaming and desperate. And any battles you have here at Great Park, whether they be occasions when sadly Christians fall out and division happens, and that happens in churches, but the source of it is not people. The source of opposition on the outside is not people. It's satanic. Ephesians 6 Paul writes to the church and he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Satan's constant desire is to thwart and destroy the church of Jesus. So Saul had a plan uh, and you know let's let's not make the connection that the Bible doesn't make. It's not as though Saul is deliberately in cahoots with the devil. You don't have to sign a pact in blood with Satan to end up doing his work. The um, example of that of course is Peter we read Matthew 16 where Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus tells them, I've got to go to the cross. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not going to die, Lord. We're not going to let that happen. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Hang on a minute. I thought Peter had just discovered who Jesus was, declared he's the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, any work that seeks to, seeks to oppose and stop the work and the growth of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is from a source that is anti-God, anti-Christ, satanic in source. The devil wants to stop you grow as a Christian. He wants to stumble you. He doesn't want you to surrender and submit your life to Jesus. He doesn't want you to grow in your faith. He doesn't want you to share the gospel with your neighbors and friends and work colleagues. He wants to put a lid on it. And he'll do it by all kinds of means. But be in no doubt, that's his desire. Well, let's go on to the next set of verses. Chapter uh, one, uh, sorry, chapter 9, verses 3 to 7. So reading from, from there. So first of all, Saul had a plan inspired by the evil one. But secondly, in this chapter, Saul has an appointment with the risen one. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Did you notice that God spoke his name. I, I, I get embarrassed sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm not good at names and I have to learn names. And if I'm in a meeting in a room with new people, often I'll write names where they're sat around a table so I can say their names. I can see one or two people um, probably do the same thing and struggle with the same issue. But, you know, when someone says your name, I remember the um, uh, former leader of the work of GLOW, John Spears, a really great evangelist and someone who I've got to know as a friend, a Scottish evangelist who often came across to Northern Ireland. I, I only saw him once every few years when I was in my teens, but I remember um, shaking his hand at the back as was the tradition in the gospel halls in Northern Ireland, and he preached, and he shook my hand, and he said, Well, Marty, that's Marty, by the way, that's, Well, Marty, how are you? Sorry, that's my Scottish. It's not, it's not very good. Um, it's a good day to be English, by the way, but uh, it's not a good day to be Irish. We'll just pass on very quickly uh, <laughs> about that. If you're a rugby fan, you, you know what I'm talking about. But I was really impressed. This preacher whose preaching I loved, who was effective in his ministry, knew who I was, and he used my name. Do you know that God knows who you are? And even if the preacher or one of the leaders or even someone in your family, my goodness, I used to think how on earth my parents could get my name wrong. I've got two brothers. My older brother's Nigel. My younger brother's called Foster. And I was called Nigel and Foster more than I was called Martin by my mum and dad. I used to think how on earth could they get that wrong? Now I've got three girls and a dog called Maggie and I have called them all of the names <laughs> except usually the right one. I mean, that's how we are. And, I, you know, you, that frustration when someone gets your name wrong. But God knows your name. And in knowing your name, he knows everything about you. He knows you in intimate detail. He knows your thoughts. He knows your worries and your struggles. He knows your joys, your hopes, your plans. I was in... Northampton, when I was training as a county's evangelist with the, I wanted to say the late, great Ivor Powell. He would never have thought of himself as, as that at all, but a godly, humble, prayerful man. 
solid evangelist, a real Welshman through and through, but spent most of his ministry in and around Daventry and Northamptonshire. And I went with him to Duke Street Gospel Hall in Northampton. I gave a bit of testimony, and I think I chaired the meeting for him, and then he preached. And uh, he was talking about this very point, God knows your name. And I think he was preaching from Moses at the burning bush where God says, Moses, Moses. Interesting thing is that God often repeats your name. He'll say it twice, Moses. He says to Samuel, Samuel, Samuel in the Old Testament as a little boy, he knows his name. And he says to Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, and Ivor Powell looked around the congregation. He said, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? God knows your name. What's your name? And there was a guy sat on the front. Sorry, just where you are. But a guy sat on the front. And, and uh, he clearly wasn't a regular in church. And Ivor was just doing the rhetorical preacher's question. And he said, what's your name? And the guy said, Paul. <laughs> and I said, oh, thank you, Paul. I, I didn't expect you to answer out loud. Paul, great you're here. And turned out Paul had been released from prison that week and didn't know where to go or what to do but thought a church might be able to help and what did he hear when he sat on the front row of church for the first time in a very long time God knows your name isn't that great news now some of us find that a little bit frightening because we got things to hide God knows you he knows all about you but you know it's better to bring what's in the dark out into the light and just let God deal with it. If you had something that you're hiding and you're running away from God, now would be a great time just to say, God, here I am. I'm bringing it to you. I want to confess it. I want to turn from it. And I want you to cleanse it and take it away. God knows your name. The second thing that Saul of Tarsus learned on the road to Damascus was that persecuting the church is really persecuting Jesus. It's later on in the New Testament, it's actually Paul himself, of course, Saul of Tarsus becomes known as the great apostle Paul. And he writes about the church being the body of Christ. I wonder if the seed thought of that was this dawning realization on the road to Damascus that when you kill Christians and lock them up and put them in prison, it's Jesus you're persecuting. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There may be things we don't like or wish we could change about the church. And I'm sure Great Parks is not perfect. Close, but not perfect. I'm sure there are things you'd like to change. I, I, I'm sure um, there's probably no one here that you don't get on with. Uh, but, uh, you know, we all, have, we all have people that we like and we find easier and some that we find more difficult. You know, as uh, Rick Warren, the American pastor, said, some people should have a label stuck on their forehead, E-G-R. When you see them coming, you read, extra grace required. Hi, how are you? But we, we're, all, we're all human. We know what that's like. But at it's most fundamental. We've got to remind ourselves of the church which means the people that God has gathered to himself is the body of Jesus. And I need to treat those members of the body, even those that I find, and perhaps especially those that are most difficult, with honor and grace and kindness. 
Third thing to notice is, so firstly, God knew Saul's name. Secondly, persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. Thirdly, Saul knew that God was speaking. Now, remember I said, don't, don't, don't make join the dots that, that the Bible doesn't join. Saul has not signed a contract in blood with the devil to persecute the church. In fact, most shockingly of all, Saul believes he's doing the work of God in persecuting the church. He believes that Jesus is some upstart from Nazareth who is usurping the prophecies about the Messiah who Israel were expecting. And Jesus is nothing but a carpenter's son. He was crucified. He's dead and buried and gone. And this upstart movement called the way, how dare they perpetuate this myth that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. How dare they perpetuate this fantasy that he's risen from the dead, even though the high priests knew that they had no alternate explanation for the empty tomb. And so Saul radically believed he was doing the work of God. Do you know it's possible even for Christians? And Saul, of course, was no Christian at that time. He was a devout Jew. But it's possible even for Christians to believe they're doing the work of God and be completely going in the wrong direction. You and I need to be a little bit gentler and more humble and say, Lord, make it clear to me I'm doing the right thing and going the right way. You know, there was... Um, story told. And as far as I know, it's a true story. I remember reading it and reading the name of the church in the States where this had taken place. But the, the church had um, introduced a new sound system, a new PA system. And uh, it was louder than the old one, but they were attracting more young people and the music was a bit more upbeat and they still sang some of the old hymns. But a preacher who remembered the Ferrari that uh, had been kicked up when they brought this new PA system in uh, was surprised when he went back to the church a number of years later and found one of the same uh, people who had opposed the introduction of the PA still wearing ear mufflers, not because it was too loud, but just as a silent protest that he wasn't happy with what the church were doing. Ten years after the event. Brothers and sisters, that's not godly. You may not agree with every decision that's made. You may be unhappy about some decisions that are made, but silent protests, stand-up protests, walk-out protests, not godly. I grew up in a very conservative gospel hall where when we introduced, and it wasn't me doing it, I was just a teenager, but I remember the overhead projector was in. You remember those? With acetate slides. Now I know for some gospel halls that's still modern technology, and um, that's, that's okay. I grew up there and I love those people, and I'm very grateful to God for all that we had. But I remember it being used on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday school. It wasn't used in the evening service or the morning service, but it was used at Sunday school. And I remember one of the Sunday school leaders standing up and saying, It's like the cinema in here. And out he went, like some latter day Ian Paisley made his protest and walked out. Brothers and sisters, that's inappropriate. You might have a problem. You might need to take it up with the leadership. You might need to sit down and talk with people. You might need to pray it through. But standing in opposition to what may be the work of God and you are out of step is a terribly dangerous place to be. 
I hadn't intended to say that, and I don't know if I'm speaking to anyone. I have no knowledge about the circumstances of the church here or your own heart. But Saul knew that God was speaking. How did he know? Because he was a follower of God. It was God he wanted to serve. It was God he was pursuing. He believed it was God's mission that he was carrying out. He knew the Old Testament scriptures and he believed he was following God's will. And this deeply, devoutly religious Jew humbly had to ask as this blinding light literally made him blind and this deafening voice rattled around his ears. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This religious man knew that the experience was from God, and the voice was the voice of God, but the God he thought he knew, he had to say to him, who are you, Lord? That's humbling, isn't it? I thought I knew you, God, but now I hear your voice. I've got no idea who you are. And what does God say to him? I am Jesus. Boy, that would rock your world, wouldn't it? You're opposing Jesus. You're anti-Jesus. You hate the name of Jesus. And then God speaks to you from heaven and stops you in your murderous tracks and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you ask, who are you? I know you're the Lord. I know you're God. But I don't know who you are. I don't recognize your voice. And the voice says, I'm Jesus. What a moment. In that moment, Saul is cut to the very center of his being. Friends, the one that we all have to face, the one who will stand in judgment <coughs> of us, the one to whom all authority has been given, the one that the Father says that he makes the judge of all the earth is Jesus. It's Jesus that you and I have to deal with. It's Christ, God's Son, the Savior. You know, we can leave a relationship with Jesus to the very end of life and put it off and put it off. Maybe you've never surrendered to Christ. Saul had to fall on his knees, fall on his face just outside the city of Damascus as he was on his way to arrest and imprison Christians. He had to fall on his face as he was humbled before God and bowed the knee before Jesus and acknowledge that Jesus really is the Lord. And some people put it off and put it off. And maybe you're here and you put it off. You've never confessed Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, if you don't confess him as Lord in this life, you will meet him as judge in the life to come. And he will be seated on the throne. And he will look for your name in the book of life. And if it's not there, you'll be cast out eternally from his presence. That's the truth of the word of God, but you don't have to put it off. You don't have to meet him as the judge of all the earth. You can do him as your friend, as your savior, as your guide. You could surrender to him. Why not now? Well, verse 8 to 19, as we draw to towards our conclusion, let's read from verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple 
named Ananias, no doubt one of those who he was going to arrest. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord... Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What a different man Saul is in this picture. Broken and dependent. If God's going to do a work in us and through us, he will often do it through our brokenness. It may be that you're feeling quite inadequate to do the work of God, quite inadequate to be a mouthpiece for God. If you come along tonight, you'll hear about the original Shrek, the first uh, speaking donkey. In fact, the only speaking donkey in the Bible, as we're going to think about um, Balaam's donkey tonight. You know, you don't have to be gifted or great or glorious or good-looking or be able to preach to be able to be used by God. You just need to be surrendered to him and say, Lord, I don't have much to give. I don't have much to bring. In fact, perhaps all you feel you have is your brokenness and a history that might be a little patchy. But brokenness is God's most used tool of choice to produce character in the lives of those that he most wants to use. Not because he's cruel, but because we are stubborn, self-centered, egotistical, and full of pride. And Saul, the great Pharisee, is led by the hand, blind. His plans and pieces depend on others. What if you're facing brokenness and health, or circumstances that are beyond your control or your ability to fix. Your pride is taking a battering. You've had to learn how to depend on others. What should you do? Well, the answer is simply surrender. Surrender to God. Say, Lord, I can't change anything. I am totally and utterly dependent on you. And as Saul surrendered his life to Christ and awaited Ananias, perhaps one of the named people on his charter from the high priests, Ananias comes. And I love the first thing that he says to Saul. Did you notice it? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You're in a family. The people that you hated, the church that you persecuted, were your family, were your brothers and sisters in Jesus. 
the Lord who you met on the road, Jesus has sent me. And so through the ministry of another brother, he receives healing, is baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And if we had read on, and we won't go any further in chapter 9, you'll read that almost immediately the trajectory of his life is changed from being an opponent of Jesus to being the greatest advocate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Outside of the Gospels, over half of the New Testament is written by this man who's humbled on the road to Damascus. But those who humble themselves, God will exalt, but God opposes the proud. Why not this morning surrender your life to Christ? Maybe for the very first time, thanking him for dying for you, taking your place on the cross, rising again to life, and offering you new life through his finished work. Maybe as a believer, if you're a Christian already, maybe is now a moment just to quietly reflect about the direction of your life, about some of the decisions you've been making, perhaps taking your life and your decisions fully into your own hands and not actually going prayerfully the way that God might be directing you. Maybe it's time to stop and pause and re-surrender Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the musicians just to come up. After I pray, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. Of course, the story of another man who uh, was uh, an opponent of the gospel, John Newton, uh, who um, was, in his own words, the vilest of sinners, the most despicable of men, a slave trader who despised the people that he carried his cargo around the world, the captain of a slave ship, but who also had his Damascus Road experience and humbled his heart and became a preacher of the gospel and the writer of perhaps one of the greatest gospel hymns that we've ever known. And we're going to sing it as our closing hymn. So I'm going to pray and then we'll stand and sing our closing hymn and remain standing after for a very short blessing. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. We thank you that it is still today the power of God to transform and to change the lives of those who believe. And so, Father, we do pray for anyone here this morning who has not yet submitted and surrendered themselves to Christ. Father, we pray that you would break in to our lives, that you would break into the lives of those who perhaps are just carrying on regardless, perhaps not thinking at all about eternal things or about who Jesus is and his claims upon our lives. Father, we pray that this morning, today, might be that day, that moment of surrender and a full, wholehearted commitment to Christ. Father, for those of us who perhaps have been on the road a long time, it's possible as we reflect that we've taken a wrong turn, that we've become stubborn or proud. Father, we know that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so we ask again that <clears throat> you would help us as we seek to humble our hearts and surrender our lives and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray that through our lives this might bring glory to you and extend your kingdom through the work of the gospel in the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name.